0: Welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. I'm going to tell you a couple stories today and then we'll get into the philosophy behind these stories a little later on. Just a warning there's a discussion of drugs and drug paraphernalia, vampires, and the horrors of child rearing in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. No naughty words, though. John Swanson is a friend of mine going back many years. He lives here in Northern California in Chico, where I live, but his story begins in Southern California.
1: Southern California, San Fernando Valley.
0: Working as an aerospace inspector.
1: Aerospace inspector at an aerospace place. He
0: knew he had to get out of that environment.
1: And I moved with my cousin who moved up here into Oroville.
0: Oroville is right near Chico, where John lives now.
1: And the reason why I moved up here was because I had had some drug issues with cocaine.
0: John was addicted to cocaine.
1: And I knew that in order to get myself fully clean, I needed to out of that situation, out of that area. When I worked at the machine shop, it was easy to do drugs there because there was a lot of guys there that would supply or had. And uh, even, I have to say, even some of the inspectors that came from the government did, did drugs with me there. And we would go, on Friday, we would get off work at noon and we would go to a bar, the Beef and Barrel, start drinking and once you guys started getting a little tipsy you just go in the bathroom do a line of cocaine which kind of cleared you out again and you can go back and drink more um, so we would do that and that was every week every friday that's what we did
0: john was trapped in a pretty classic addiction story
1: it just you don't realize it at the time of what you're going through or what you're doing but my life revolved around my next fix
0: Things were pretty bad for John, even though he was maintaining a job and had a social
1: circle. I had bought a 76 Chevy Love Truck, and I think it was 1980. I traded it off for five grams of cocaine because I needed needed drugs. I needed drugs. I worked close so I could walk or ride a bicycle, and the drugs was more of a pull, but... uh, You know, when when you're on on drugs, nothing else is, it matters. You know, it's just getting that fix and trying to maintain that high.
0: So that's act two of the story. John has reached a point where he knows he has to leave his current situation.
1: I had to change my environment with the, with, uh, the drug part two.
0: Act 3 begins as John arrives in Northern California. New environment, but not too much else about his life has yet changed. He already had a cosmetologist's license.
1: And so I had gone and had my license at 84. I received my hairdresser license. So I had that in my back pocket. So I moved up here. Well, I came up here in uh, Thanksgiving
0: of 88. John got a job at the Master Cuts in town.
1: Quit my job, packed my apartment up, and moved up here all within a week. I lived with my cousin and then got the job in the mall. And I ran into a gal named Karen, and she asked if I was going to church. And I said, no. I said I was raised Presbyterian, but that was, you know. And she says, oh, you should go give this church a try. You know, so I went. And the minute I walked in that door, it was like I was like home something had said, you're home. So I started attending the church.
0: He met some people who would become lifelong friends and they mentioned youth ministry to him.
1: She says, you seem to be really good with kids. And I went, oh, I don't know. I've never done anything like that. You know? And she goes, oh yeah, please, please, please. So I went on, I think it was a Wednesday and uh, I helped out the junior high. So that was that. And I started doing that and That's when Jim Coons was just a director at that time. Just started doing youth ministry, and doing youth ministry taught me, or showed me, I should say, that there was more into life than what I was doing.
0: John put his heart into doing youth ministry, spending time caring for young people as they explored their relationship with the Christian religion. But the turning point of our story wasn't going to church and starting out youth ministry. In fact, at this point, John still experienced a lot of temptation in his life.
1: In you know, the first year or two of doing youth ministry, I, have, I was tempted many times. Matter of fact, there was one time I had smoked uh, a joint with one of the high school guys, and I was so guilt ridden, it was terrible. And I went in, made a appointment with uh, uh, Pastor Shipstead, and I said, I can't do this. I, I, you know, I, I, this is what I did. And he looked at me <laughs> and started laughing. And he said, you don't think that none of us have ever fallen? He says, give me a break, you know. He says, would you do it again? I said, oh, no, 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 no. He goes, you learn a lesson? Yeah. Well, then go back out there and keep doing ministry. And so, and I still to this day can remember sitting in that office in the old lounge offices and, and him saying, you know, And he always called me Swanson, Swanson, get over it, move on, you know, but yeah, yeah, it wasn't easy. It was, you know, it was hard. It was hard. There was a lot of times when I would be in my little house and going, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing? You know.
0: In fact, Jim, the youth pastor at John's church, Bidwell Presbyterian in downtown Chico, would play a central role in John's story he would offer John a transformative experience that enabled him to move beyond his temptations and live a life free from addiction.
1: I remember one time I was in Jim's office and he says, there's an underlying problem here. What is it? I said, I'm really struggling with my drugs, my, you know, of uh, my addiction. And uh, he goes, well, the only way we can do this is let's go to your house, get your stuff paraphernalia stuff. And he says, we're taking a trip.
0: John goes to his house, grabs the denim bag that had all of his drug paraphernalia, and goes back to meet with Jim.
1: The bag was actually a cutoff of a pair of uh, blue jeans. And so I would put the stuff in there and just wrapped it around with a uh, leather cord to keep it all together.
0: There was a really nice marijuana pipe in there.
1: And it was silvered in wood.
0: A short pipe. A vial of cocaine with a spoon on it.
1: And there was still cocaine left in it. Wrapping papers. Wrapping papers, a short pipe that you could put in your pocket to smoke. A bong. A little homemade bong we had made at the machine shop.
0: So Pastor Jim told John to go get...
1: My little bag of paraphernalia stuff. And we went to the river. And we wrote... He wrote a verse on a piece of paper. And we tied it to it, and then we prayed. They
0: prayed for strength, for John to overcome his
1: addictions and temptations. And he had me throw it in the river. Okay, this is why I get a eyed <laughs> That verse now is my life verse.
0: John's life verse, the verse in the Bible that he feels best represents the central theme of his life and inspires him to be his best self, is 2 Corinthians 5.17
1: which it is um, on my leg now. I have it tattooed on my leg. Um, Because it has forever changed my life.
0: Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come.
1: The old has gone, the new has come.
0: The old has gone, the new has come. If you missed it, this is the climax of the story. This is the moment where John's life
1: changed. It was truly life-altering. It really was. Because I I have to say, when I look back at it, retrospect, if it wasn't for that, I don't think I would have cleaned myself up. Because uh, the drugs and that lifestyle was an easy escape for a lot of things that I didn't know that I was struggling with.
0: It was this moment of Pastor Jim taking him by the hand down to the river, that helped him know that his old life was over and he was living a new life. This allowed him to find new ways of escaping the demons that had dogged his every step.
1: So, and then it got to be where I could control the wantings of drugs. Throwing all that stuff in the river really was a key for me. really was.
0: I wanted to take a moment to mention that Pastor Jim fought hard for many years against cancer but ultimately he passed away at far too young an age. Reverend Jim Coons left behind not only a family full of beautiful and loving people, but hundreds of lives changed by his passion for people. I'd like to take a moment of silence for Jim. He was a friend of mine as well, especially throughout my college years. Let's take a break, and then we'll move on to another story. ¶¶ I wanted to take this break to highlight another philosophy podcast that I enjoy personally. Uh, it's called Philosophers in Space and they talk about a work of philosophy and relate it to a work of media usually TV or a movie or something like that and they draw some interesting in, insights and parallels out of the discussions and um, I think it's really worth listening to. It's, it's really fun conversations to listen to. A story from philosopher Laurie Paul. See if you can recognize a common theme with John's story of freeing himself from addiction.
2: Let's say you were wandering through um, a castle in Romania. It was, you know, a medieval castle, and suddenly Dracula comes upon you and gives you the choice to become a vampire. And he says,
0: "Look, go back to your Airbnb and think about it. You've got until midnight tonight. And if you choose to become a vampire, then when I appear at your window, let me in." Otherwise, leave town tomorrow and never come back.
2: And so this is incredibly exciting. You go back to your room, you start texting your friends and asking um, your parents like, what you want to do and what you think um, this would involve. And as you talk to them, you find out actually everyone else has already become a vampire. And you're like, what? You know, Why didn't you tell me? And they say, well, you know, look, it's incredibly fabulous. Life has meaning and a sense of purpose that it never had when I was human. But you can't really understand it. You have to become a vampire yourself. To find out, so there was no point in telling you. You would just feel alienated from us. Okay, so you know vampires like have all these amazing new capacities. They they look beautiful in black. They have amazing sense capacities. They're incredibly strong. They're undead. They can't. They sleep in coffins. They can't go to the beach. There's like pluses. There are negatives, right? Um, I like to kind of try to set aside moral questions by saying that like vampires, modern vampires can drink artificial blood, or they can drink you know the blood of humanely farmed animals. So. Let's just say that, you know, they're not going on killing people. Um, so then, okay, so now you have this choice. Like, what are you going to do when, when Dracula shows up at midnight? Are you going to let him into your room? Or are you going to leave town? Are you going to say no and pass it up?
0: So what do you do? Well, it's not totally clear. Part of what makes it unclear is that you're a human. And it's murky peering into vampire life and uh, trying to figure out whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. After you become a vampire, you might enjoy it, but it's hard to know as a human whether it would be a good thing to stop being human.
2: And the problem is, right, remember what your friends or relatives said. They said, there's no way for you to know what it's like to be a vampire until you actually become one. Now, they also say it's fabulous, right? But you might worry that something about becoming a vampire really makes you love being one, right? You might worry that you can't quite trust their testimony or at least even if their testimony is meaningfully and honestly given that is not relevant to you as a human right they're vampires now so they love being vampires but right now if you're worried about being a vampire it might be that um you should choose in accordance with what it's like to be a human not choose to become a vampire
0: whatever a vampire says about being a vampire isn't going to be the right kind of testimony to convince you that becoming a vampire would be a good thing Vampires have different values, different needs, different experiences of the world than humans do. What it's like from their perspective is more or less irrelevant to whether it'd be a good thing for you to become one. You have to stop being you to become a vampire, and that means even if it's good for a vampire to be a vampire, it might still be very bad for you to become a vampire. Let's take a break and return to discuss the philosophical thread that runs through these stories. I want to take this break to highlight another philosophy podcast. This one's called Overthink, and it's produced by uh, Dr. Ellie Anderson and Dr. David Peña Guzman. And they have a good rapport with each other. And the things they're talking about are really interesting and accessible to millennial and Gen Z audiences. Uh, So things like, why do millennials love homemaking and and HGTV and things like that? Um, how, How does nostalgia shape identity? Um, existential anxiety, um, anti-maskers and American individualism, empathy, the problem of ghosting. So they have some fun topics and um, they're fun to listen to and and really insightful. And so um, I've enjoyed listening to them quite a bit. So what do these stories have in common? Laurie Paul is a philosopher at Yale University. I sat down with her at the Eastern meeting of the American Philosophical Association in New York to discuss her book, Transformative Experience.
2: Transformative Experience. So what is the book about? So the book, Transformative Experience, is about big life decisions. And I think the short pitch about it is that the idea first is to identify this thing that I think happens to a lot of people, namely transformative experiences are intense life-changing experiences that come upon us at different times in our life and sometimes we choose them and sometimes we don't so part of what the book is about is just identifying that and describing that and trying to understand what it what it is and there I say look a transformative experience in the philosophical sense that I want to look at it is about a change in what you understand so an epistemic change as well as a change in who you are and so I think of the of epistemic transformations as changes in what you know and understand. and personal transformations as changes in you know who you are, what you what you care about, maybe how you think about yourself.
0: Transformative experiences are experiences that involve epistemic changes. They change what you know and more centrally, what you understand. Transformative experiences, also produce personal changes they change who you are your values your decisions and your own self-conception and your own experience of yourself
2: and then what the book does is say look after identifying this kind of distinctive kind of um experience um says, look, there's lots of different kinds of things that can count as transformative experiences, and by the way, we should understand that there are special kinds of decision problems that can arise when we face the possibility of choosing um, to have a transformative experience. Um, And that's because if a transformative experience changes what you understand, um, and what's important here is that you can't understand it without having that experience, then you can be in a really interesting position when you're trying to decide whether or not you want to undergo a transformative experience because there's something really distinctive about it, namely that you can't know what it's going to be like until you actually undergo it.
0: There's something especially tricky about the decision to undergo a transformative experience. It's not like choosing strawberry or vanilla ice cream. It's more like choosing to change something fundamental about yourself.
2: But if it changes you, it's actually a really high-stakes decision. So it's a problem because normally when you make a life-changing decision, you kind of want to know what you're getting yourself into. And you can know some things about these transformative experiences, but really what really matters, namely how it's going to change the way you understand yourself, how you understand like yourself in relation to the world. There's a very deep sense in which you just can't know. And so um, we face, I think, distinctive kinds of problems when we decide either to have or pass up transformative experiences.
0: Okay, so we face certain decisions in life that meet a couple of conditions. First, they are decisions to have experiences that alter your values, your understanding, and your agency so that you become a different person after having these experiences. And second, they are decisions to have experiences that give you access to understanding that you cannot have without going through those experiences. And so you can't predict what life will be like on the other side of those experiences. And you can't go back, you can't take it back once you've had those experiences. You're looking through a glass darkly if you try to discern what life will be like after the transformative experience. So let's start with those vampires. What's going on there?
2: They're vampires now, so they love being vampires. But right now, if you're worried about being a vampire, it might be that um, you should choose in accordance with what it's like to be a human not choose to become a vampire. I think it's an open question and the point that I wanted to that I that I'm trying to illustrate with this thought experiment is first that when there's a kind of life change where you know you can't know what it's going to be like uh, basically in the future then if you want to choose based on what you think it's going to be like to live your life as a vampire or as a parent or as a, you know, whatever, like as a doctor or as a soldier or other kinds of things, then you face a real problem because you actually have to do it to find out what it's like. But once you've done it, there's no going back.
0: It's going to be radically different to be a vampire. Your experience of yourself and the world around you will change and change in ways that you can scarcely imagine. So how do you decide to do it? You don't know what it will be like and whether it will be good. But once you do it, you can't go back. There's no way to compare the two and decide what you like best.
2: There's a second issue, though, a more subtle issue. And that is that there can be a conflict with the self that you are as a human and the self that you become as a vampire. They might have incommensurable interests. So there's a further issue here, because even if that vampire self would be fabulously happy, you as a human might want to reject becoming that self.
0: You might be happy as a vampire, but you as a human right now might not like that future vampire self. If you met them, you might be horrified that this is who you will become. Your values and your sense of self as a human in your current state and your experience of the world as a human are incompatible with all those things you'll have as a vampire. You won't necessarily like the you that is a vampire, just as you might not like other people who are vampires. To become a vampire is therefore for your current self to die and get replaced, but it might get replaced with a self that you don't now approve of becoming. What makes this all the more hairy, though, is that you have no way of really knowing. The only way to know this vampire you is to get acquainted with them by becoming them, to experience the world through a different set of eyes. But once you do that, there's no going back to human you to compare the two. You have to take a leap of faith into the unknown world of the undead. This is a real problem for decision theory. How do we theorize about these sorts of decisions when the decision to, say, become a parent is in some sense the decision to become a different person?
2: It's like maybe you have no desire at all to have a child. Like you just find like those poor tired-looking parents to be sort of objects of pity and you know if you became a parent you would just love it But you just want to you just reject becoming that kind of self That means that whatever the testimony is even if you know in some sense that people say it's great Because you can't project yourself forward and really know what it's like ahead of time You don't have any independent way of making that decision Sometimes like your mom calls you up and says look I know you just I know you'd be so happy as you know you know as a father and you know, maybe she's right, you would be so happy as a father. But does that mean that you have a deep preference to become a parent that you just can't recognize? Or does it mean that that preference would be implanted in you by having a child? And the interpretation matters because if you you are within your rights to reject her urging that you become a parent, even if she's correct that you'd be happy. Right. If you don't actually have that preference, if she knows you better than you know yourself, well, then that's a different kind of situation to be in. So part of it was part of the idea is to say, look, there's some deeper structure here that really hasn't been recognized.
0: Going back to John, the first story, he, he was able to leave his old self behind after casting his addictions and coping mechanisms into the river. He underwent a transformative experience. He was a cocaine addicted aerospace inspector at one moment and a clean hairstylist doing junior high ministry in the next moment. It was an experience of casting away his old self and meditating on the Bible verse, the old has gone, the new has come. It changed him as a person, or maybe was a pivotal experience in the longer process of changing himself as a person. Either way, he saw his life differently, and he saw himself differently. And so in a very real way, he had become a new person. Luckily, he likes the new hymn, since he can't go back. I like the new hymn, too. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll talk about my recent transformative experience. I wanted to take this break to highlight a podcast that I've enjoyed, Sean Carroll's Mindscape. He often has philosophers on there, and um, he, he's a good, good interview. Sean Carroll's probably the most likable scientist in the world. And he's actually personal friends with Laurie Paul, who you're now familiar with. And so he's really sympathetic to philosophy and the the value of philosophy. And um, so it's, it's really fun to listen to. When I talked with Laurie Paul, my partner and I hadn't yet begun to try for a baby, but we knew we would be trying relatively soon. So I asked Lori Paul, herself a mother, what it was that I was missing. What didn't I understand now that I would understand in the future?
2: Well, I can try to tell you, um, but it's a little bit like trying to describe what it's like to see purple to someone who's never seen color. So I can tell you, and there's things you can understand. I could tell you about the, you know, it's about light reflectance and the wavelength and things like that. And maybe it feels kind of warm and glowy or something like that. But they're still just kind of not going to get it until you see purple.
0: So if someone is unable to see color, then they won't even be able to imagine what it would be like to see color. It's like me asking you to imagine what it's like to experience the chemical structure of gold directly, or to think like a computer, or to enter a black hole. You can't even imagine what it might be like because it's so far removed, so alien from your repertoire of experience that there's nothing to compare it to. There are echoes here and there of the inverted spectrum question from our previous episode. Anyway, at the time of my interview with Lori Paul, I could sort of imagine what it would be like to care for a newborn, to fall in love with a newborn, and so on. I had nieces and nephews whom I adore, and could sort of reason what it would be like to have a baby of my own, I felt like maybe I had in in some sense figured it out, but at the same time, I believed my mother and my sisters and my brothers and Lori Paul herself when they told me that actually having a child of your own was a transformative experience. It is an experience that unless you actually go through it, you will always lack a certain understanding and you won't likely be able to become the kind of person you are after that experience unless you actually have that experience. It's just fundamentally different to have a child of your own, and I would think this includes adopting a child of your own, than to sort of imagine what it would be like were you to have a child of your own.
2: Another thing, though, is just... So psychologists talk about the parent-child relation as an identity-defining uh, bond when it's formed. And it's not always formed, but you know many people do form that bond. And what's interesting about being in that relation... I think of it as like, it's just like, in a certain way, it's a kind of falling in love. The first time you fell in love, you could have known before you ever fell in love that it was going to be maybe great in some ways, but there's still a distinctive character to standing in that relationship with another person that I think has to be experienced to kind of fully understand. I think the parent-child relation is a different kind of love. It's not like romantic love, and yet it is in some sense. When you love this tiny being that also loves you, That is a kind of lived experience that I think is wonderful. And also, by the way, it can create vulnerability and pain, just like, you know, romantic love. So that's another kind of thing that basically you're in for, right?
0: I also spoke with Jordan Wallace-Wolf, a friend from UCLA who serves on the board of Inverted Spectrum Media. And he also helped us understand moral particularism in the Trolley Problem episode from season one. At the time we spoke, he had a daughter and my son wasn't even conceived yet. I wanted to talk with him about what it was like to be a parent before I became a parent and then look at that conversation. So here's what Jordan said. The experience of becoming a parent happens at many
3: different moments, actually. It happens several times where you say, I'm a parent, and none, I guess, more forceful than the birth of the child. Um, I think one of the big experiential effects for me is just understanding the unbelievable anxiety that parents have it's a joke and a trope and a theme that parents are worried and especially maybe not the most ever in history We have like anxious parents because we have fewer kids and we invest more resources into them and society's more stable in some places. And so we get to take advantage of that. So we're like, we're so worried. So I got a glimpse of that. But the glimpse of being worried was really just a glimpse into this whole world of reinterpreting all of my parents' relationships to me, which is also a trope and a theme. So that was kind of my first double moment of like, I get what it is to be worried. Those immediate experiences as a portal in to kind of reinterpreting and re-understanding my childhood in a way that you can't do. You know, I drive a lot slower (laughs) is, like, the easy way to, like, put that. And, like, not only do I drive a lot slower, but I feel like I understand a lot more why it's important to drive slower. And I remember when I drove fast as a teenager, and I still see teenagers driving fast next to me, and I think, that's dangerous. (laughs) And I... It's just a different relationship to that utterance of it's dangerous. Because I probably said that a few times when I was a kid, but it probably didn't mean anything to me or mean the same thing to me.
0: Okay, so in the future, I'm going to care for this being and have responsibility for this being in a categorically different way than I care for anything else. My wife, my mother, my siblings, my nieces and nephews, my pets, and so on. I can sort of rationally suppose what this is like. I can peer into the future of having a child and sort of guess at what it might be like. But having this relationship with another being is something I don't know what it's like to experience. And I can only sort of guess what it does to change you as a person. Jordan also shared some experiences and reflections that seem to me not so much a part of the transformative experience of parenting, but just things you sort of inevitably learn as a parent that you might be able to learn otherwise, but you don't tend to learn. So this is a sort of separate category than the changes you go through when you go through a transformative experience. These are things you learn through experience, but perhaps you can also learn them by listening to other people who've had that experience and just sort of learning from their their experiences. This is different from what it's like to be a vampire, because no matter what the vampire says to you, you'll never really know unless you actually transform into a vampire. Here are a few examples of what I'm talking about here.
3: For me, so I always, uh, I always put our daughter to bed. I'm in charge of sleep. And so she's become very accustomed to, if she wakes up, she's very good about going to sleep um, when I pick her up on my chest. And she's very comfortable there, but it wasn't always so. And we've worked at it for a long time. So finally, she's comfortable going to sleep on her own and putting herself back to sleep if I pick her up and say, like, hey, why are you screaming in the middle of the night? Or why are you upset? And when she she rests on my chest, it's a very special feeling. It's a very special feeling because I feel like I'm fulfilling a good role. I'm helping her get something she needs, which is sleep. And she trusts me to do it. And I take great pleasure in doing it.
0: I know what it's like to have an animal bond with you and depend on you and be comforted by you. I know what it's like to care for something helpless like a puppy and f- to be its source of comfort. Right? Well, maybe it's not exactly the same. But I feel like I can sort of understand this without a- having to actually go through the experience. Here's another thing that Jordan said.
3: It makes you realize that people think that being a baby's easy. All you do is eat and, sh- and sleep. It's actually so challenging. It's so challenging to be a baby. The world is so in your face and everything is new and it's like – it's just like such a pain. Everything is like potentially a crisis. Like the light comes on. Like why did the light come on? I'm trying to sleep. Or the sound – the kids outside are screaming. What is that? Why are they screaming? I'm trying to sleep. Or it's hard to eat or – Any number of things. Or I have a runny nose for the first time. What is it to have a runny nose? She can't breathe. She's freaking out. She can't sleep. I mean, it's just, so it's just interesting to see, like, how how really challenging it is. And those milestones are, like, really magical when they beat that or they learn or they, you know, become um, accustomed to something.
0: Yeah. Okay. so this is sort of an intellectual achievement, right? It's it's something you learn when you watch a baby grow in an intimate way. But it's also something you can probably learn fairly well just by reading about it or having someone explain it to you. Here's a snippet uh, straight from our conversation where I identify what I take to be a central aspect of what makes becoming a parent unique and special. This is, I think, one of the most philosophically important differences between where I was during our conversation, childless and without any fetus or blastocysts or anything to call my child, and where Jordan was seven months into raising a baby. One of the differences seems to me is that for me... I just have a like potential future child or children and I don't know them yet. Um, but, but there's a person out there like in the world that you belong to, um, that, uh, so th- it's interesting where I, I can kind of feel like, oh, okay, I, I understand that these things are going to happen and I'm going to have yeah. these experiences yeah, yeah. and stuff, but I don't know the person yet. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a pretty profound difference.
3: It's really profound, and it's something that actually doesn't go away when they're born, because I don't know the person of, of Roosevelt really very well. Um, she has some opinions. I've just kind of seen a little bit about what she might be about. But that's another thing. I mean, I think it's just, yeah, it's a, again, I think most parents are, are, will tell you this, and it's not like any secret, but you, you get really excited about what will this person become Like, what will they do? What will she like? How will she make fun of me when I say something silly at the dinner table? Or how will she spend all her time? It's just – it's really magical to think about that and and just – and try try to really be open. Try to just take that receptive stance. Like, show me, like, what you're interested in and what you want to do. And, like, I want to help. Like, I want to promote that. I want to, like, bring that into full relief. Like, I want to – so –
0: I think about this scene from the movie about time. Have you ever seen it? No oh, it's a fantastic movie uh. um, you should definitely see it um, okay it's, it's a it's a good date date night okay movie. cool um, but it's Donald Gleason and his his father's Bill Nye, and they both have the power to time travel mm And he makes a mistake and he goes back in time to before his um, daughter was conceived Mm. and alters things a little bit. And then he goes back into the future and there's just like some boy sitting there and he doesn't know this person. Like it's it's his son Uh because of the way that timeline unfolded. But he Mm. doesn't know him, nor does he have like that connection with him. And so I feel like I'm kind of in that situation where Mm. it's like, oh, there's a kid. And you know, in the future, like there's this possible kid out there um, that's going to be my kid, and I'm going to have a relationship to. But I, they feel kind of alien in a way because they're not even a, a a real thing in the universe yet. Yeah. Um, whereas for you, it's like, oh, it's that individual. It's that individual.
3: <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a difference. Yeah, it makes a difference. Definitely, no, it's going to be, it's going to be her, whatever her personality shows up as. But
0: right. yeah. So, in the summer, my wife and I actually had a child. My son Wesley was born. side of that experience I can say that things do look different I celebrate when my son poops I care for his skin better than I care for my own skin I worry about his weight gain and I feel it really deeply when he's sad or hurting the trope of parenting being like having your heart walking around outside your body is very true I feel vulnerable because a part of me is out there in the world apart from me I have changed in this way. I'm a different person than I used to be. And I knew some of this intellectually, but I didn't know what it would be like to be this Andrew. Now that I've gone through this experience, I I do know I am that Andrew. One specific change is the following. Being a parent and living through the experience of entering into this special parent-child relationship Changes you and changes your values. Here's Lori Paul again.
2: I sometimes tell a story about something else that um, I think is, 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 if not universal, is very, very common. So when I was, um, uh, I had my daughter and she was about a year old. I was pushing her in her stroller across the street, and a bus started like was coming down quite quickly, and I realized I had to move fast because we were in danger of, of being hit. And then I, and, and I did, of course, but I realized as I rushed across the street. That um, if it had, like in the moment, if it had been necessary for me to sacrifice myself by pushing the stroller, let's say, but not making it out of the way of the bus, I would have done it in a heartbeat, like without even thinking about it. And that was a real revelation for me because never before had I so um, openly and honestly had an unselfish desire to put someone else before myself.
0: Yeah, I totally identify with this now that I have a child Before, to be perfectly honest, I'd struggled with the idea of sacrificing my life or myself for someone else. I would have done it for my partner, to be sure, but it didn't feel as natural as it does for my son. Before Wesley, I valued my projects and my goals and my own sense that I had something to offer the world to a really high degree, and so sacrificing myself seemed counter to some of my deepest held values and beliefs. Now, I wouldn't hesitate, and all that talk of my own contributions to the world and my own projects sounds kind of silly in comparison to my identity as a father.
2: Um, and that's another way in which, like, this is the way in which the distinctive character of the love that's involved is really different from other kinds of love. Like sibling love, romantic love, you can all, you put the person that person's interest above yourself, but it doesn't have the same kind of cognitive naturalness as the parent-child kind of loving relationship has. So... so If you think about that, though, that's a kind of fundamental reorienting of values. And that flows into so many other ways in which you live your life. Like, after a while, you start living your life oriented around the welfare of another person in a very natural way. So you've kind of changed how you think about yourself, how you relate to others, and and how you relate really to the external world. Because you think of, like, that child in a way more than you think of yourself. And then lots of, obviously, uh, life and career decisions flow from that.
0: Jordan Wallace-Wolf. The other thing
3: is, I guess, you, you start to think about how a lot of your habits that you're really affecting the growth of someone, where some of your habits, they're not so, they're bad, but, but when the other person in your relationship is another adult, it's not so corrosive. They, they're not going to pick up those habits because they're adults and they know they're stupid habits and they chide you for those habits all, all the time because they know how dumb they are. But with a kid, kids absorb things non-rationally, or they take inspiration from, from
0: things you do. I also totally identify with this. I am a compulsive nail-biter, for example, and I pull at my nails and cuticles all the time. I have a, a seriously overactive self-preening instinct. Uh, it's it's a nervous tick, and this used to pretty much just affect me, uh, maybe, maybe my wife a little bit, but... Uh, Now I do it, and I see Wesley watching me do it, and I realize I I need to either hide it or change it. I can't give him this bad habit. A second example is that my wife and I both now think more critically about our cell phone use, especially around our son. We fail in countless ways, like all smartphone-era parents do, but we have to think about how our behavior will influence our child. In short, becoming a parent is more than just changing your schedule, responsibilities, and independence. As if that wasn't enough, becoming a parent also changes your identity. It changes your values, your self-conception, your experience of yourself, and your dispositions towards the world. It's a fairly fundamental change. I knew this going in, but I hadn't experienced it firsthand, and so I wasn't able to truly see what life is like after becoming a father. The only way to find out was to become a father, and once you do that, you can't go back. This is why it's like becoming a vampire, or leaving one's addictions behind, or countless other things. Let's take a quick break and then highlight some of the further implications of Lori Paul's insights here. <music> ¶¶ wanted to take this break to highlight a couple of philosophy podcasts that I've already mentioned before. So, Hi-Fi Nation is the podcast that is the most like Reductio. It's narrative. In fact, it's more narrative than Reductio. um, uh, Barry Lamb is the producer, and he really focuses in on personal stories in a way that i would like to do more in the future but haven't quite done as as much on reductio so i, I really highly recommend it again um, the episodes i've mentioned that i like the best are uh, cover me softly and the wishes of the dead um, those are the two episodes that i think are really great intros into uh, hi-fi nation uh, it's a really nice program the other is Elucidations, which is a more like long-form interview program um, run primarily by Matt Teichman, and they do some really nice interviews, and I've, I've used it to expand my philosophical knowledge quite a bit, and um, it's, it's a nice way to fill in more background and get a, a, a sense of what, what some contemporary philosophers are doing with their work right now, and um, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Before we call it a day, I want to highlight a couple of implications of transformative experiences for philosophers and raise one sort of worry for Paul's ideas. I wanted to give Paul a little more time to speak here and draw out some of the implications and applications of her insights. One implication of this is that we generally hold other people responsible in inappropriate ways.
2: Sometimes people do these things, they have these transformative experiences, or they refuse to, and there's a way in which we give them too much responsibility. Like they were supposed to know more about it ahead of time than they actually did, and I don't think that that's fair. I still think people should take responsibility, but I don't think we should expect ourselves to know as much about these future or possible selves um, as sometimes people seem to think that we should.
0: We should perhaps give each other a break when it comes to decisions surrounding transformative experiences. Fully grasping the nature of transformative experience is therefore a tool we can put in our empathy toolkits. It allows us to understand other people's lives more clearly, and that is decidedly a good thing. Then there's the question of how to actually go about making these decisions. So to be clear, the problem is that Professor Paul has made clear that we don't have certain resources we thought we did when we're making decisions involving transformative experiences. We're not sure what it will be like on the other side of the experience, and we're not sure who we will be when we've gone through a transformative experience. So if we can't necessarily appeal to our current values and our current ideas about what we want and what would make us happy and and who we are, our, our sense of self, what can we do? What can we appeal to when we're trying to make these decisions? Is there a branch we can get a hold of to help get ourselves out of the quicksand? Uh, Or is it always just going to be this irrational leap of faith and we just have to accept that?
2: So, I mean, I do think that the science matters and I do think getting testimony and evidence matters because it can tell you about some of what to expect. It's just that there's still an important very important, maybe an essential dimension that's not going to be available to you. So you can find out about, for example, 50% of people respond this way, and 25% of people like you respond this other way, and et cetera. But I don't think, even if you knew how you were most likely to respond, um, you still don't know what it's going to be like when you respond that way, and the what it's like part is incredibly important. But you can prepare yourself somewhat, so I think that's good. What I say in the book about making the decision rational, because I argue that you can't make these decisions rationally if you're choosing based on what you think that future life is going to be like, because that's precisely what you don't know. So what do you do? The thought is that, well, you can change the way you think of the decision. And instead of thinking that you're choosing, well, I'm going to live my life this way versus living my life that way and really knowing um, what it's going to be like to live your life this way versus living your life that way. What you should think about doing is making a discovery, so you make a choice about whether you want to discover what it's like to be a parent or you want to discover what it's like to be a soldier and discover the person who you'll become, the self that you'll become, in virtue of undergoing this transformative experience. Now. I think that's the way life really is, in fact, and I think that is a perfectly rational thing to do. It's just that that's unsatisfactory. I mean, if you say, well, I, you know, I'm just going to have a child because I want to you know, find out what it's like, that sounds incredibly like, you know, superficial and kind of like a crass reason to, you know, for, for becoming a parent. But that's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that there are these things we do, um, especially you know, as humans or as part of the modern society that we live in, and we make certain kinds of choices to become certain kinds of people. Where we should just recognize that there's a huge part of that of that choice that involves kind of taking the plunge and making a discovery and allowing who you are to you know to just basically be decided by the experience. And so we don't have the kind of control that we may maybe that we thought that we had. And to also to take joy in that, to to find the revelation that comes from um becoming a parent or forming those friendships and also from you know you can get revelation from pain and suffering as well so my thought is that especially you know academics we live in our ivory towers and we want to be able to try to learn everything we can without actually having to go out of the ivory tower and part of my point is no you actually do have to go out and live life and take chances and allow yourself to be formed in unexpected ways and we should welcome that instead of fear it
0: another implication is in the realm of ethics some moral theorists think we should be perfectly impartial. Utilitarianism is is one such theory. We're not allowed to weigh our decisions in favor of those we love or in favor of ourselves. We aren't allowed to be partial in our decision making. Laurie Paul isn't a moral theorist; she's a, a metaphysician and a, a cognitive scientist. But she's tempted to say that there's something wrong with these moral theories,
2: and that's maybe because, of, as as you can probably tell, I think there's an immense amount of value in having experiences and making discoveries and uh, again, exploring the relations we have with others and the, and the relations we have with the external world. And some of the relations we can have with others, I think are morally valuable and they involve a kind of like selfishness, if not selfishness for one's own self, a kind of selfishness for some of those who, who we love. And I don't think that's wrong.
0: Okay, so here's a sort of worry for Paul. It's not a serious worry, but it's a a sort of way of understanding transformative experience more deeply by almost pretending that we're raising a serious worry for Paul and then seeing what she has to say. So to begin the critique, here's a list of unambiguously transformative experiences I came up with having a child, having a second child, losing a child, beginning an affair confessing to an affair, breaking up with a romantic partner, going through a divorce, coming out as gay or trans or bi or any other queer or genderqueer status, one's parents divorcing, moving out of one's hometown for the first time, ending a friendship, leaving a longtime career, doing a Ph.D., Changing one's diet, like becoming a vegetarian or a vegan. Living through a global pandemic. But aren't many other experiences we go through, like, many transformative
2: experiences? So, for example, it might be new and different to have a different kind, of new kind of food. Or, um, I don't know, go skydiving instead of scuba diving or something. Like that. So in a different kind of sport.
0: Maybe it's just the nature of having an experience that they change you. I think about the experience of driving a familiar route and then realizing that you weren't really paying that close attention to what you were doing. These things don't change you. And so there's a sense in which you don't even really experience them. Maybe experiences by their very essence cause changes in us. In that case, Paul's observations about these uncontroversially transformative experiences seem almost pedestrian. Of course these experiences change you. Every experience changes you. But I actually think this possibility, if it's in fact an accurate claim about the relationship between experience and personal change, makes Paul's insights all the more important— Laurie Paul would be right. Decision theory has some serious reckoning to do if some experiences are transformative, all the more so if essentially all experiences are transformative. This is just a a thought. I think we can see that there's a difference between having a child and stubbing your toe. Right. Sure, you might make different decisions going forward after stubbing your toe, but the experience isn't necessary to make the personal change. You can merely imagine stubbing your toe and as a result decide to walk more carefully or wear shoes or the like. This is decidedly unlike having a new person in your life that depends on you in a deeply fundamental way. Here's what Lori Paul said in response to this sort of issue. Note, uh, again, that the word epistemic means having to do with knowledge or belief. So when Paul talks about epistemic transformation, she's referring to transformation in what you know, really simply coming to know new things.
2: So I say, absolutely, that's merely epistemically transformative, right? It changes you. And maybe you had to have that experience to know exactly what it was going to be like, but it didn't actually shift your core values in any way. It didn't actually radically change like how you understood yourself or the world around you or anything like that. And so. I mean, ultimately, it, I, some people have said this, and I, and I think they're probably right, that, you know, trans, transformation is a matter of degree. And it might just be that, you know, the epistemic change has to be of a significant enough, like a, a, it has to be a, of a degree that's so, so significant that it changes really how you think in some way. And then it's going to be transformative in the way that having a child is or becoming, you know, going to war or um, getting Alzheimer's would be.
0: Thank you so much to Lori Paul for sharing these insights with us. This lays the groundwork for a rich array of philosophical study on the nature of experiences, the nature of persons and selves, and the nature of decisions. Her book is linked in the show notes. As we draw to a close, I want to return to the story of John from the top of the episode. There's a sense in which the story he told earlier was by a long shot not the most transformative experience of his life. Acts 4 and 5 of his story have their own embedded transformative experience.
1: And it was also through all of that is when I finally realized that I am not a a straight person. I'm a gay man. And uh, that I'm still wrapping my, my mind around.
0: John spent most of his life unsure about and then concealing a part of his identity.
1: That only happened, I just came out See, I'm 65. It came out when I was 62. So um, that has really, really has changed my lifestyle and my way of thought and my way of doing things. That um, you just never know what goes on in people's minds and their hearts until you just stop and listen.
0: But coming out as gay is exactly the sort of experience that Laurie Paul has been thinking about. It's difficult, if not impossible, to know what people's reactions will be. But even more importantly, it's impossible to know for sure how it will feel for you to be accepted, rejected, shunned, or affirmed by the people around you. You will change as a result of coming out to such an extent that you can never go back and it will be difficult to anticipate fully what life will be like on the other side or maybe I should say on the outside. John struggled with the reactions of people in his community. Some were openly affirming, others were quietly so, but others weren't comfortable with the new John. From talking with John, I I figured out that he hadn't anticipated how he himself would process friends and acquaintances turning away from him. From the outside, I can see that he's so happy to be out that the sting of those shunnings isn't just a price he's willing to pay, but fundamentally lessened and transformed by the experience of coming out. It just feels different than he would have anticipated, and it therefore hurts less than he would
1: have feared. The old has gone, the new has come.
0: Thank you to all of you for listening. Please don't forget to share links with your friends. The link is in the show notes. Maybe rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a review. Maybe give us a little coin each month at patreon.com slash reductio to help pay the bills. Whatever you can do to support, we really appreciate. Thank you to Lori Paul, John Swanson, and Jordan Wallace-Wolf for telling their stories and sharing their insights with us. Lori Paul's book, Transformative Experience, is linked in the show notes. Thank you to Xinjiang Wong for editing help on this episode. Welcome to the world, Wesley Lavin. You know, a lot of people have heard of the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, but they aren't familiar with some of his more obscure writing. Uh, In one of his notebooks, he said something almost inscrutable. This has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin.